I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Alexander Song. I am a recent graduate of Howard University College of Medicine, who will be starting a transitional year this July at St. Joseph Mercy Ann Arbor, followed by radiology with the Hofstra Northwell System of New York. I will be narrating the embryology chapter of Crush Step 1, Second Edition. Chapter 4, Embryology Description of Anatomy This chapter will make use of various anatomic terms shown here. Familiarize yourself with them before beginning. Cranial, toward the head or cranium, similar to the term superior. Caudal, toward the tail, similar to the term inferior. Medial, toward the midline. Lateral, away from the midline. Dorsal, toward the back of the body. Ventral, toward the front of the body. Sagittal, coronal, transverse. Body planes that transect the body, each perpendicular to the others. Refer to figure 4.1 at the bottom of the page for illustrations of these terms. Early embryology, the first month. The first week, from fertilization to implantation. Day zero. Fertilization occurs when a sperm enters the egg, usually in the ampulla of the fallopian tube. The acrosome reaction occurs when a sperm meets the egg and releases enzymes that penetrate the zona pellucida, the outer shell of the egg. Day one. The single-cell zygote undergoes rapid mitotic cell divisions. Recall that the egg initially was arrested in metaphase 2 after ovulation, but completes this division only after fertilization. See chapter 16. There is no time for cell growth during this rapid dividing phase, so it is termed cleavage because the cells are cleaved into more numerous but smaller cells. Each cleavage doubles the cell number as each individual cell participates. Day 3. After there are 16 or 32 cells, it is now termed a morula, Latin for mulberry, because there are now many cells resembling a berry. Days 4 to 5. Sodium-potassium ATPase pumps deliver sodium into the interior of the morula, creating an osmotic gradient and subsequently forming a fluid-filled cavity inside the morula. The embryoblast cells inside in a cluster, and the trophoblast cells, outside, are now distinct. Altogether, this is called the blastocyst. As can be seen in figure 4.2, the embryonic pole is the portion of the blastocyst in which the embryoblast cells are located. The embryoblast will go on to make the embryo, as expected, subsequently separating into the epiblast, dorsal, and hypoblast ventral. The trophoblast will eventually make the placenta, including the cytotrophoblast and the syncytiotrophoblast. 
Day 6. The blastocyst implants into the endometrium. If this implantation occurs in an abnormal location, for example the fallopian tube, it is termed an ectopic pregnancy, which is a medical emergency. Refer to figure 4.2 for a schematic that illustrates the fertilization of an egg and its eventual implantation. Twinning. Understanding twinning can be confusing because twinning is described in terms of the number of zygotes, monozygotic or dizygotic, the number of chorions, monochorionic or dichorionic, and the number of amnions, monoamniotic or diamniotic. The zygote part is easy. Recall that a zygote is made when an egg and sperm combine. Therefore, when twins arise from one egg and one sperm, they are considered monozygotic. If two eggs were each fertilized by an individual sperm, the twins would be considered dizygotic. The chorion refers to a membrane that is formed by structures including both trophoblastic layers, cyto- and syncytiotrophoblast, and will eventually form the placenta. Therefore, monochorionic twins will share a placenta. The amnion refers to the amniotic sac. Those that are monoamniotic will not be separated from one another, meaning they share the same pool of amniotic fluid, and could potentially be conjoined. Because dizygotic twins are formed from two different eggs and two different sperm, they are not genetically identical and are called fraternal twins. All dizygotic twins, therefore, have their own placenta, dichorionic, and amniotic sac, diamniotic, and they each develop in the normal fashion independent of one another. They are simply two pregnancies simultaneously. The case with monozygotic twins can be more complicated. Refer to figure 4.3 for a diagram showing different shared structures in twinning. Monozygotic twins occur when a single zygote splits and forms two embryos. They are termed identical twins because each forms from the same zygote and therefore they have the same genetic makeup. However, Depending on how early the split occurs, they may or may not share a chorion or amnion. The later the embryo splits, the more structures will be shared. Imagine that the zygote had immediately split, that it had not started to form any structures yet, and therefore each could do so on its own, such as in dichorionic or diamniotic cases. If the split occurred later, Structures would have already begun to form and therefore must be shared. The important landmarks to remember are that the chorion will form at day 3 and the amnion will form at day 8. Splits that occur after these landmarks will share those structures. Remember that all of the following examples are only applicable to monozygotic twins. Dichorionic, diamniotic. The split must have occurred before day 3 to have two separate chorions. Because the amnion forms after the chorion, if the twin is dichorionic, it must also be diamniotic. Therefore, these monozygotic twins will not share a placenta, dichorionic, nor will they share the same 
amniotic fluid sac diamniotic. Monochorionic diamniotic. The split must have occurred between days 3 and 8 because the chorion has formed and is therefore shared, but the amnion has not. These fetuses, therefore, share a single placenta, monochorionic, but each has its own amniotic fluid sac, diamniotic, and they are spatially separated from one another. Monochorionic, monoamniotic. The split must have occurred after day 8 because both structures are shared. Therefore, these fetuses will share a placenta, monochorionic, and amniotic fluid sac, monoamniotic, and will potentially be conjoined if the split was late enough. There is also a phenomenon called twin-twin transfusion syndrome that only occurs in monochorionic monoamniotic twins in which, because of placental anastomoses, one twin gets proportionally more blood than the other. This leads to a large twin that got most of the blood and a small twin that got less of the blood. It is usually a fatal condition for both twins. The second week, the rule of twos. The trophoblast, which will give rise to the placenta, has now differentiated into two layers, the cytotrophoblast, cellular, and the syncytiotrophoblast, a syncytium in which the cells have fused together. The cytotrophoblast divides through mitotic division and will generate the chorionic villi. This has embryogenic importance because it allows maximal surface area of contact with maternal blood in the placenta. It also has clinical importance because chorionic villus sampling is a method to diagnose chromosomal or genetic disorders in the fetus. The syncytiotrophoblast does not divide through mitotic division. This generates human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, which is used clinically. The beta subunit, beta HCG, is the substance that pregnancy tests detect. It is also important in the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy, see chapter 16. The embryoblast, which will give rise to the embryo, has now differentiated into two layers, the epiblast, dorsal structures, and the hypoblast, ventral structures. Together, the epiblast and hypoblast are known as the bilaminar disc. There are also two cavities now, the amniotic cavity formed from the epiblast cells and the yolk sac formed from the hypoblast cells. Refer to figure 4.4 for an illustration of the status of the embryo by the beginning of the second week. Lastly, at about day 10, the syncytiotrophoblast will begin to secrete HCG. As mentioned previously, beta-HCG is used clinically to detect pregnancy and assess for an ectopic pregnancy as well. Because ovulation occurs 14 days before menses, by the time a patient is supposed to have menses, the pregnancy test should be accurate. Dipstick pregnancy tests are qualitative, meaning positive or negative, no numerical values. Blood tests can be quantitative, meaning they give an actual value. In early pregnancy, the beta-HCG should double every 48 hours. 
This is used as a benchmark to determine whether an ectopic pregnancy is potentially present. This is because the syncytiotrophoblast, if not implanted into the endometrium and implanted elsewhere, such as in the fallopian tube, would not have enough blood supply to increase the beta-HCG twofold in 48 hours. This suggests an ectopic pregnancy or other non-viable pregnancy. Please refer to figure 4.5 for a summary of embryogenesis thus far. The third week, gastrulation and the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. The third week has the rule of threes, three germ layers after gastrulation. Gastrulation is the important step that produces the three germ layers, the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. Understanding the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm and the organs they produce is helpful in understanding organogenesis and even development. This concept also becomes important in adult life because malignancies of tissues derived from the mesoderm, muscle or bone, are termed sarcomas, such as myosarcomas and osteosarcomas respectively, whereas malignancies of tissues derived from ectoderm or endoderm are termed carcinomas. The process of gastrulation begins with the formation of a primitive streak, which is essentially just a midline invagination. Subsequently, the epiblast cells migrate through the primitive streak. The bottommost layer becomes endoderm, the middle layer becomes mesoderm, and the top layer of epiblast cells that did not migrate becomes ectoderm. These three germ layers will eventually give rise to various parts of the developing embryo. Figure 4.6 illustrates the process of gastrulation beginning with the formation of the primitive streak and eventual epiblast inward migration. Ectoderm The ectoderm consists of surface ectoderm, neuroectoderm, and neural crest cells. Surface ectoderm makes the surface layer of many organs including the epidermis of the skin as well as sensory organ structures such as the olfactory epithelium and epithelium of the mouth. It also makes glandular structures such as the adenohypophysis which itself is an outpouching of the roof of the mouth known as Rathke pouch and other glands including the mammary, sweat, and salivary glands. Neuroectoderm makes neural structures, essentially, all central nervous system structures, such as the brain and spinal cord, but also the retina because the retina is neural tissue. Neural crest cells. The neural crest cells create essentially all peripheral nervous system structures. This also includes melanocytes, parafollicular C cells of the thyroid, and chromaffin cells of the adrenal medulla, which become important in melanoma, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and pheochromocytoma, respectively. Neural crest cells also play an important role in the formation of conotruncal endocardial cushions, which are essential for the proper development of the heart. Genetic disorders that involve problems in neural crest cell migration are often associated with cardiac abnormalities. Lastly, 
Many structures in the face, including teeth and bony structures, are derived from neural crest cells. Therefore, conditions such as DeGeorge's syndrome involve both craniofacial abnormalities and cardiac defects. Endoderm The endoderm is mainly responsible for developing into structures of the gut, such as the liver, pancreas, and other organs of or relating to the gastrointestinal system, and some endocrine glands such as the thyroid follicles and parathyroid glands. Mesoderm The mesoderm further separates into sclerotome, myotome, and dermatome, which develop into bone, muscle, and skin structures respectively. Although the skin is mostly of mesodermal origin, the epidermis is derived from surface ectoderm. The rule of threes for week three also encompasses the formation of three body axes. The cranial caudal axis, the primitive streak is organized top to bottom, head to rump. The medial lateral axis, because the primitive streak is midline. And the dorsal ventral axis, front to back. The end of the third week also marks the beginning of the embryonic period, during which organs begin to form. Before the end of the third week, teratogens typically have an all-or-nothing phenomenon, causing natural abortion of the embryo or no harm at all. There is nothing in between, such as birth defects. However, starting in the next week, with organogenesis, teratogens can cause errors in formation and lead to significant birth defects. The fourth week, neural tube closure and beginning of organogenesis. Week four also marks the rule of fours as organogenesis begins to take place. Four limb buds begin to grow. Four chambers of the heart have developed and begin to beat. The heart begins to beat at 22 or 23 days, when it has grown to such a size that it cannot get adequate nutrition by diffusion alone. Although the third week marked the beginning of neural plate development, which will give rise to the spinal cord, the fourth week marks the closure of the neural tube. This closure can be normal or abnormal. Abnormal cranial closure leads to anencephaly, whereas abnormal caudal closure leads to spina bifida in one of its three main forms. Anencephaly occurs when the cranial head end of the neural tube does not close and leads to an absence of the forebrain and therefore is not compatible with life. Most patients with anencephaly die in utero or within hours to days of birth. Because there is no forebrain, there is no possibility to generate conscious thought, but because the brainstem is developed normally, primitive reflexes may be present. Spina bifida occurs when the caudal bottom end of the neural tube does not close, usually near the L5 to S1 area. This incomplete closure can lead to malformation of the vertebra overlying the spinal cord and to a passageway for the spinal cord to protrude out of the back. The severity of the defect is related to the size of the opening. This can result in a spectrum of disease ranging from completely asymptomatic to permanent paralysis. Spina bifida occulta 
This defect usually does not have symptoms or signs because the incomplete closure is so minor that the spinal cord cannot protrude out of the defect. Occulta is Latin for hidden. However, some common findings include a small tuft of hair or hyperpigmented skin over the affected area at the midline. Because there is a small vertebral fusion defect, this can be seen on lumbar spine radiographs. Spina bifida with meningocele. A meningocele occurs when the meninges, the three layers, dura matter, arachnoid matter, and pia matter, that surround the spinal cord, protrude through a defect in the vertebra, but the spinal cord does not protrude. Therefore, the chance of neurologic dysfunction is still relatively low. A meningeal cyst, a sac filled with cerebrospinal fluid, may be visible at the site of the defect. Spina bifida with myelomeningocele. In this severe form, the defect is large enough that the spinal cord and meninges both protrude through the vertebral defect and are damaged. This leads to neurologic problems below the level of the cord damage, typically resulting in paralysis and loss of sensation in the legs. This is associated with other structural neurologic defects such as Dandy-Walker syndrome and Chiari II malformations. Refer to figure 4.7 for illustrations of the different types of spina bifida. Folate deficiency increases the risk for the previously mentioned neural tube closure defects. Because the neural tube closes by the fourth week before many women even know they are pregnant, folate supplementation in women of reproductive age, especially during the prenatal period, is important in preventing both anencephaly and spina bifida. Anencephaly, myelomeningocele, and meningocele, but not spina bifida occulta, can be suspected in utero if high levels of alpha-fetoprotein, fetal albumin, are detected in maternal serum. This laboratory finding makes sense because alpha-fetoprotein will diffuse into the amnion. Polyhydramnios excess amniotic fluid, may also be present as CSF leaks into the amnion through the defect. Embryology, week 5 and beyond. The first month of embryogenesis is important to understand in detail. However, the rest of embryogenesis can be talked about in generalities. Weeks 4 to 8, Organogenesis and Teratogenicity. Week 4 was described in detail because it marked the closure of the neural tube and the beginning of organogenesis. Hence the rule of fours, with four cardiac chambers and four limb buds. Because this is a critical stage when the organs of the body begin to be constructed, teratogen exposure in this period is especially deleterious and can result in significant fetal malformations. Recall that the first three weeks marked the all-or-nothing period when an exposure to a teratogen would either cause abortion or nothing. The most common teratogens are alcohol, smoking, and medications. Chapter 5 covers maternal infections that can lead to birth defects. High-yield teratogens are covered here. Substances of Abuse Alcohol 
Fetal alcohol syndrome represents the most common birth defect caused by a teratogen. Along with developmental delay, these patients have the classic smooth philtrum, a thin upper lip, a saddle-shaped nose, and maxillary hypoplasia. Cocaine. By preventing reuptake of catecholamines, cocaine is a potent sympathomimetic. This causes increased vasoconstriction from alpha-1 agonist activity of catecholamines, and therefore decreased blood flow to the placenta leading to hypoxia in the fetus. This can lead to placental abruption, abruptio placentae, or detachment of the placenta from the uterine wall before delivery, which is an obstetric emergency. Cocaine exposure in utero can also lead to generalized problems such as developmental delay and a number of birth defects presumably also due to hypoxia in the fetus. Smoking Smoking has not been shown to cause specific birth defects, but just as smoking causes damage to the endothelial cells in the rest of the body, predisposing the mother to heart attack and stroke, the placental vasculature is similarly damaged. This leads to a poorer blood supply to the fetus and can cause intrauterine growth restriction and preterm labor. Note, a common substance of abuse, opioids, for example, heroin or prescription opioids, are not teratogenic, but opioid use in the mother can lead to neonatal opioid withdrawal. Common medications. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors. Recall that ACE changes angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, which has effects on the renal system. Use of ACE inhibitors, or angiotensin 2 receptor-blocking drugs, during pregnancy has been linked to renal problems, including renal agenesis. Because amniotic fluid is essentially fetal urine, fetal renal dysfunction leads to oligohydramnios and Potter sequence. See Potter sequence, oligohydramnios sequence, under renal embryology for details. Anti-epileptic medications Most anti-epileptic medications are teratogenic to some degree. Phenytoin has a specific syndrome called fetal hydantoin syndrome, which consists of facial defects, nail hypoplasia, and developmental delay. Many anti-epileptic medications have folate antagonist activity, such as valproic acid. Therefore, as expected, many are associated with neural tube defects. Aminoglycoside antibiotics Aminoglycoside antibiotics have ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity as side effects in adults. These side effects are amplified in the fetus if the mother takes these while pregnant. This can lead to sensorineural, cranial nerve 8 deafness and renal damage. Lithium. Used in treatment of bipolar disorder, lithium is linked to a specific defect termed Epstein anomaly, in which there is downward displacement of the tricuspid valve through atrialization of part of the right ventricle. The right atrium becomes too large, the right ventricle becomes too small. Retinoic acid, vitamin A, and other retinoids. Often prescribed as isotretinoin, a treatment for cystic acne, all retinoids in supraphysiologic amounts can cause severe birth defects. The developing embryo uses Hox genes to control anteroposterior development 
and uses a gradient of retinoic acid concentration to trigger development in the proper order. Large amounts of retinoids disrupt this and lead to significant growth defects, spontaneous abortion, and cleft palate. Tetracycline Antibiotics Most tetracycline antibiotics chelate calcium and therefore can deposit in developing bone. In the fetus and even in children, this can lead to discoloration of teeth from deposition and chelation of calcium. Warfarin Warfarin has anticoagulant activity by blocking the vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme, preventing the synthesis of active vitamin K and therefore blocking clotting factor synthesis. Therefore, lack of fetal clotting factors can lead to fetal hemorrhage and abortion, as well as bone deformities. Heparin, which does not cross the placenta, is preferred for anticoagulation in pregnancy. Historical Medications These medications are no longer prescribed but are commonly tested. Diethylstilbestrol, DES, prescribed up until 1971 to supposedly prevent miscarriages, it did not. This drug was subsequently found to cause clear cell carcinoma of the vagina in female offspring and increased risk for cryptorchidism and sex hormone abnormalities in male offspring. The mothers who took DES are at increased risk for breast cancer as well. Thalidomide. This medication was supposed to decrease morning sickness in pregnant women. However, it caused birth defects in the offspring, specifically phocomelia, which is a shortening of the limbs. Commonly, these patients were referred to as flipper babies because the shortened limbs had the appearance of flippers. Thalidomide does still find use today in the treatment of multiple myeloma. Refer to figure 4.8 for illustrations of fetal alcohol syndrome and thalidomide toxicity. Weeks 9 to birth, the fetal period of organ maturation. During this stage, all organs have at least begun to form. However, much development and maturation will still occur. Because the focus is now on growth, teratogens have less effect compared with during the period of organogenesis. However, Teratogens can still have a significant impact on development. Fetal circulation and erythropoiesis. Structure of the placenta and umbilical cord. The placenta acts as the interface between the mother and fetus. Through the placenta, oxygen and other nutrients are transferred, but so are potentially harmful things such as drugs, toxins, pathogens, and immunoglobulin G, also known as IgG antibodies. Note that IgM pentamers are too large to traverse the placenta. The placenta is termed a fetomaternal organ because part of the placenta develops from the fetus through trophoblastic cells and part develops from the endometrium of the mother. Refer to figure 4.9 for a diagram illustrating various parts of the placenta. The umbilical cord consists of two umbilical arteries and one umbilical vein. The umbilical arteries will become the medial umbilical ligaments when they close after birth. Do not confuse this with the median umbilical ligament that forms when the urethra closes. This will be discussed later. Logically, the umbilical arteries, because there are two, could not be median because two things cannot be in the exact middle. Overview of Fetal Circulation 
The fetal circulation shares many similarities to the adult circulation, but also has important differences. The main differences are in terms of oxygen concentration and the presence of physiologic shunts. The oxygen in the fetus is transferred from maternal hemoglobin to fetal hemoglobin because fetal hemoglobin, hemoglobin F, has a higher affinity for oxygen than adult hemoglobin, hemoglobin A. Therefore, at the interface of the maternal and fetal blood in the placenta, oxygen exchange occurs from the mother to the fetus. This newly oxygenated fetal blood returns through the umbilical vein toward the fetal heart. Therefore, oxygen tension is highest in the umbilical vein because it was just oxygenated at the placenta. The first physiologic shunt is encountered in the liver. The ductus venosus shunts about half of the oxygenated blood away from the liver because the fetal liver does not need 100% of the blood to be adequately oxygenated. This blood moves into the inferior vena cava, subsequently moving into the right atrium. The fetal lungs do not oxygenate blood because they are not breathing air, but rather are breathing amniotic fluid. The fetal lungs do not have a large oxygen requirement, so most of the blood will bypass the pulmonary circulation. It does so through the second and third shunts, the foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus. The foramen ovale is a passageway between the right and left atria and allows blood to bypass the lungs and move directly to the left heart. The ductus arteriosus is a passageway between the pulmonary artery and the aorta, allowing blood that did go into the right ventricle and pulmonary artery to again bypass the lungs by moving directly into the aorta. The ductus arteriosus is distal to the aortic arch, so blood that moves through here will go into the descending aorta and to various end organs or back to the placenta for reoxygenation. On the other hand, the blood that went into the left ventricle can go into the aortic arch, oxygenating the upper limbs and brain. Interestingly, more deoxygenated blood returning from the brain through the superior vena cava will move into the right ventricle and then into the pulmonary artery, ductus arteriosus, and descending aorta to be reoxygenated. The oxygenated blood preferentially moves through the foramen ovale instead, helping to oxygenate the brain. In this way, deoxygenated blood is efficiently moved into either of the two umbilical arteries to be reoxygenated at the placenta. Refer to figure 4.10 for an illustration of the fetal circulation. Fetal circulation summary. Fetal blood is oxygenated at the placenta and moves toward the right side of the heart through the umbilical vein. 50% of this oxygenated blood bypasses the liver through the ductus venosus. Once at the right side of the heart, there are two possible shunts bypassing the lung, the foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus. Oxygenated blood preferentially moves through the foramen ovale to allow the left side of the heart to pump oxygenated blood into the aortic arch and therefore the brain. Oxygen-poor blood returning from the superior vena cava preferentially moves into the right ventricle, pulmonary artery, and ductus arteriosus pathway to be placed into the descending aorta and to then move into either of the two umbilical arteries to re-oxygenate the blood at the placenta. Changes to fetal circulation at birth. At birth, changes occur that drastically change the fetal circulation and transition it to the adult circulation. Recall that in utero, the fetus did not need to breathe for oxygenation because oxygen was provided through the placenta. 
Note that the fetus in utero does breathe to cycle amniotic fluid containing growth factors through the lungs to promote development. Once born, the baby now takes its first breath, causing multiple changes. Reactive hypoxic vasoconstriction relieved. Recall that low oxygen tension causes vasoconstriction in the pulmonary vasculature. Once the baby takes his or her first breath, the increased oxygen tension in the lungs causes significant vasodilation and subsequent dropping in the pulmonary vascular resistance and therefore pressure. Decreased pulmonary pressure. Once born, the drop in pulmonary pressure causes a decrease in right-sided heart pressures. Now the left-sided heart pressure is higher than the right, which closes the foramen ovale. Failure of this closure causes a patent foramen ovale, which is a type of atrial septal defect, ASD, and can cause a persistent left-to-right shunt. See Chapter 8 for details. Beginning of Closure of the Ductus Arteriosus The ductus arteriosus is no longer needed because there is no need to shunt blood away from the pulmonary vasculature. The ductus arteriosus will close functionally soon after birth and will subsequently close anatomically through fibrosis, becoming the ligamentum arteriosum. The closure occurs through a decrease in prostaglandins, which normally help keep the ductus open. In some congenital cardiac disease states, the presence of a patent ductus arteriosus is important, and prostaglandin E1, alprostadil, is given to keep the ductus open. If the ductus arteriosus is improperly open, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug such as indomethacin can be used to prevent prostaglandin production and close the ductus arteriosus. Closure of the ductus venosus Because the neonate no longer needs to shunt blood away from the liver, the ductus venosus will close and subsequently become the ligamentum venosum. Fetal erythropoiesis now that the path of red blood cells and their oxygenation has been covered, the actual sites of synthesis and types of hemoglobin will be briefly discussed. Fetal hemoglobin binds oxygen with greater affinity than maternal hemoglobin. That is to say, the oxygen dissociation curve is shifted to the left. Normally, in adult hemoglobin, 2,3-diphosphoglycerate, 2,3-DPG, is synthesized by red blood cells during breakdown of glucose. 2,3-DPG decreases the affinity of oxygen for hemoglobin. However, fetal hemoglobin cannot bind 2,3-DPG, and this results in fetal hemoglobin having a higher affinity for oxygen than adult hemoglobin. This allows fetal hemoglobin to preferentially bind oxygen over maternal hemoglobin to ensure oxygenation of the fetus. The bone marrow does not synthesize red blood cells in the fetus until the 28th week. Before then, other sites provide that role because the bone marrow has not developed and matured enough to be the primary source of erythropoiesis. The way to remember where the fetus synthesizes red blood cells developmentally is that the young liver synthesizes blood in the fetus, YLSB. The yolk sac, weeks 3 to 8, the liver. Weeks 6 to 30. Spleen. Weeks 9 to 28. Bone marrow. Week 28 and beyond. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. 
A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.